Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. The first African-American in the United States to become a billionaire was Bob Johnson. He did that by building black entertainment television and subsequently selling it to Viacom. He used some of those proceeds to buy the Charlotte Bobcats, becoming the first African-American to be a major sporting team owner. He later sold that basketball team to Michael Jordan. Today, Bob Johnson is involved in a wide variety of business ventures across the United States. I sat down with him in Palm Beach to talk about his career and what he sees next for himself. So when you became the first African-American to be a billionaire, what was that like? People calling you up telling you how great you are or people calling up asking you for money all the time? <laughs> no, it was nothing like that, David. You know, I, I had run Black Entertainment Television, BET, for over 20 years until I sold it to Viacom. So BET had sort of become a, uh, a business success story. And as a result of that, people began to see uh, me as sort of a, as an entrepreneur that was doing something pretty, pretty good at that time. And so by the time I got to where it was uh, uh, sold to Viacom, it was sort of expected that it would be uh, worth something. So when you sold it to Viacom, after that, you then bought the Charlotte Bobcats, an NBA team, and you became the first African-American to be an owner of a major sports team in our country. So what was that like? Was that thrilling to own an NBA team, or did you really just see it as a business venture? Well, I first saw it as the, the idea of being first. Uh, there's been throughout uh, black business history, if you were the first black to do something, you gain visibility, you gain notoriety, and you gain access to other people, particularly white business people who knew you by your reputation. So when there was a team coming up for sale in Charlotte, I said, you know, why not be first? I had the capital from the sale of, uh, of BET to uh, Viacom. So I said, well, why not? And um, I decided to um, make a bid and got a call from some of the business people in Charlotte that said, we'd like you to be the uh, majority owner of the team. We'll be the minority owners and work with you. And so it just seemed to be the right place at the right time to do something I thought would be part of a strategic approach to being first. So you owned the team for about 11 years, and then you sold it to a person named Michael Jordan. <laughs> sold it to MJ, yeah. And after that, you began a, an effort to build a, what I'll call a small business empire. You have investments in many different areas, private equity, financial services, fashion, lodging, hotels, real estate. And my own firm did something with you in right. private equity for a while. So is that what you're trying to do now, is build a mini empire in different areas? and what? are your most important parts of that empire? Well, what I did when I sold BET, I decided I wasn't gonna just sit around and do nothing. 
And I decided that one way to sort of build value for yourself was to take your own knowledge, your own strategic vision, and deploy your capital and your brand to acquire assets that you could run with very talented people to help you do it, obviously, and align yourself with people who shared your vision and your culture about creating what I call wealth in the black community uh, and demonstrating to the broader market that African-American talent with capital and strategic partners like I did with John Malone when I started BET could be successful and create, create value for yourself and create value for the investors. So um, you've been very involved in dealing with black entrepreneurship and black business owners. Do you think today it's easier for a black entrepreneur to start a company or no, no more easy than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago? David, I don't think it's necessarily easier. I think there's a mindset within the white business community and to some extent in the country at large is that this definition of equity and diversity ought to see money flowing, capital flowing into black entrepreneurs for investment and operate and startups of business. It's just not easy. It's just that there's a theory that it ought to happen. And I think if it, if it were easy, you would see more Bob Johnsons, more Michael Jordans, more Magic Johnsons, and Oprah Winfrey's and the like. So I, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to say it's easy. It is correct to say people think about it more, but do they do more? That's the problem. So after the George Floyd murder, I thought that many people in the white business community said, okay, we've got to do much more in getting blacks in as on the boards, uh, senior positions in corporate America. Has that really happened or is it just talk about that? Uh, well, David, the, the sad secret of that is companies, white companies have announced that they're going to put millions of dollars into diversity in terms of black investment business. But among the people I know, and I know a lot of people who would say, hey, I just got money from here, there, and other, other places, it's really not happening. I, I saw something in the, uh, in the media that said there has been something like $50 billion of pledges made, but less than 5% of that has ever been implemented. And I, to me, it's a real sad story uh, because it's not happening. And I would know because no one has called me. Now, I've been pretty successful, as you, you know. The only thing I've done that with, David, and I am most proud of, is the partnership I've created with Vanguard, Fidelity, and Alight to create a 401k auto portability business called uh, part, uh, Portability Network, whose sole purpose is to keep black Americans, reduce cash out of 401k account by black Americans and low wage workers and white Americans, I mean, that's Hispanic workers, when they change jobs. That, those two companies, those three companies, put their commitment to diversity and opportunity and closing the wealth gap in a relationship with me. And that's what I like and respect. But I can tell you, the black community, entrepreneurs I know, are very disappointed with these what I call press release announcements with no results. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. 
Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. So let's talk about your background. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up born in Hickory, Mississippi. Hickory, Mississippi is a, a real small town, you know, one stop sign kind of town. And what did your parents do? My, well, they were workers. My father all his life was a uh, worker in Mississippi. He was a lumberer cutting down t timber in Mississippi and, and a little bit of farming uh, where he lived. And my mother was a, uh, a school teacher at the, you know, the small school system in Mississippi. When they migrated up north to a small town Freeport, about 100 miles northwest of Chicago, they became uh, uh, factory workers. So you went to college where? University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And what did you study? Uh, history. I was a history major throughout my whole career. So what did you want to be? I wanted to be a diplomat. I wanted to be an ambassador, a diplomat. So what year did you graduate? I graduated in 68. 68. And then you went to Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton? Princeton, right. And that's to do further diplomatic knowledge kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, I got a degree, master's degree in international affairs. And the, the, again, the, the fascination was, was, was history and, and right. global affairs. So you get a degree from Princeton, a graduate degree from Princeton, and all of a sudden the U.S. government says we're ready for you to be a diplomat, or what happened? Well, all of a sudden they ask you if you want to go to the Foreign Service, you have to take a test. And the test requires you to be literate in things that a kid from Hickory, Mississippi through Freeport, Illinois, didn't really know about. So when I had a question, I'll never forget this. They asked me a question, one of the questions, what is Wedgwood? And they said, a dresser of this? <laughs> I thought it was Wedgwood, it was a dresser. It was actually... So you weren't familiar with Wedgwood? Wedgwood. <laughs> right, so it ultimately you came, you came to Washington, though, and what did you do when you came to Washington? Well, I came to D.C. with the Princeton imprimatur and the connections of people who, had, who, were, at, who were former Princeton Woodrow Wilson graduates, uh, including a good friend of ours, uh, Jim Johnson. And so I started making the rounds. People referred me to this person. I went to Senator Mondale's office, I went to Senator Kennedy's office and everything else of so this Princeton Mafia, so to speak. And finally somebody, uh, after I went to uh, one of the offices, referred me to CPB, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Got a job at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting for a while, changed jobs from there and went and worked for the local Urban League in Washington, D.C. And from there, became a lobbyist for the Cable Television Trade Association. And that's where I met all the guys in the cable industry, Ted Turner, but most importantly, John Malone. So John Malone was your principal backer when you wanted to start uh, black entertainment television? Absolutely. John, I'll never forget this. I was a lobbyist. We were trying to deregulate cable. Cable was heavily regulated. Uh, to protect broadcast television on the theory that broadcast was free, cable was paying, and if we didn't protect free television, then everybody would have to pay, which was supposedly not good for people. Well, so my job was to go up on Capitol Hill and argue for the deregulation of cable so it could compete with over-the-air television. And so I met John Malone, and he said, Bob, if you ever have an idea, why don't you come out to Denver and talk to me? I said, yeah, John, I'll do it. 
And that's where my idea of starting Black Entertainment Television came from. And I took John up on his invitation and went out to Denver and made my pitch about getting me financing for BET. So John said to me, Bob, here's what I'll do. How much do you need to start this? I said, I need half a million dollars, 500,000. He said, Bob, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna buy 20% of your company for 180, uh, and I'm gonna loan you 320. That's your 500,000. And John said, under that deal, Bob, you will be 80% owner and I'll be 20. Is that a deal? I said, John, that's a deal. What Malone didn't know, David, if he'd reversed the number and said, I'll be 80 and Bob, you'll be 20, I said, John, that's a deal. <laughs> he didn't say that. So he kept putting money into BET while it was growing. Never put it in his equity, put it in his debt. And the debt got paid back. And one day I asked him, say, John, why did you put it in his debt when you could have put it in his equity and you own more BET? He said, Bob, I always knew you would work harder for yourself than you would for me. So John never sold a share of BET. So when I sold BET to Viacom for approximately three, seven, three, almost $3.8 billion, John's 180 of equity, the 320 debt, of course, got paid back, netted him over $700 million in Viacom paper because we did a stock for stock deal. Well, what was the theory behind BET that African-Americans should have a cable channel devoted to programs that would be appealing to them in particular? Was that what you were trying to do? Yeah. Well, the theory was what cable was offering to the community, basically diversity. Because once, once RCA put a satellite in the sky that could orbit on a geosynchronous orbit that allowed them to send signals all around to every cable head in, cable became a competitor for television in the big markets. And in order to do that, they had to get some big cities who by that time in the 80s had black city council members, one or two, and maybe a black mayor. So while they were offering programming to everybody else, you know, whether it's MTV or CNN or ESPN, the black city council members were saying, you want this franchise, what are you offering for my community? And that's where BET became a, sort of a must-carry product to getting the cable and the diversity part of it grow. But BET was really an extension of what John Johnson did with Ebony Magazine, except his was print and I was video. So how many years did you operate BET before you sold to Viacom? 20 years. You sold for roughly $3 billion ultimately. So in hindsight, had you held on longer, would it be worth more today or would it be worth less today because the cable world's changed so much? Uh, it, it would be, in my opinion, less today because once streaming came along, and the uh, technology allowed people to have streaming wherever they could carry content, on your phone, on your laptop, in your home, wherever you go. It changed the paradigm of, of cable and it allowed people to sort of pick and choose in an a la carte way what they wanted to watch. So if you only wanted to watch Netflix, you just get Netflix. Cable, you were paying for a bundle even though you didn't watch all of the channels. So some people were paying for, if you weren't a sports fan, you're paying 30 cents, 30, 40 cents, whatever it is now, for ESPN. But if you never watched ESPN, you had to pay for it because it was part of a bundle. So you then bought, as we mentioned earlier, the Charlotte Bobcats, a new team. Um, you didn't know much about running a basketball team, I assume, so you brought in a guy named Michael Jordan. How do you tell Michael Jordan that he doesn't know much about basketball if the thing isn't working out perfectly? Can you say, Michael, I played in grade school and I know something about basketball. How do you tell Michael Jordan things aren't working perfectly when it, if it doesn't work perfectly? Uh, you don't. 
Okay, so <laughs> just let him run the team, and you basically owned it. And he more or less was the manager of it. He, he was he was the general manager of it, and he he decided on who he's going to hire as coach. He decided on what players he's going to draft, and he decided on uh, you know how the team would be uh, be run. I was the payee and the payer <laughs> in this case. So when you sold your NBA team, the Charlotte Bobcats, the price of NBA teams had not risen to the billion dollar range. Any regrets about selling it when you sold it? Oh, definitely regrets. I, I tell Michael about that all the time. Uh, but uh, nobody could have predicted that Don Sterling would say what he said about black people. And that led to the NBA uh, commissioner to say, we've got a huge racial problem if we're going to keep Don Sterling as an owner. And he basically forced Donald Sterling out. but. Being forced out and you walk away with a $2 billion, you know, a lot of people would like to be forced out of their team for that price, you know, so that, that was it. But uh, it, Michael was always my first choice to sell the team. He and I have been friends, gee, you know, 10 or 15 years before I even owned the team. Really? So, uh, you know, I wanted, if anybody I wanted to sell the team to, if I was forced to sell, it would be to Michael. As we talk today, there's rumors that the Washington football team, now called the Commanders, might be sold. And uh, NFL teams are pretty expensive. But any interest in getting back into sports? You're a native of Washington, or not native, but you've lived there for a long time. That, that's probably a, a check too far for me because these, these teams are so rich. And I mean, you, if you could get one, it's a little bit, of, I would call an NFL team about the closest thing to a license to print money that you can think of. But you gotta really pay up for it because it's a it's a great sport asset. It's one of the best, I would say, in the world. Maybe maybe better than some of the hockey teams, although pretty close. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. To a young black entrepreneur who says, I want to be the next Bob Johnson, what advice would you give to that person about how to build a business empire and be successful? I do this, I give this answer all the time. The first and foremost thing, you've got to believe in yourself. You got to believe in yourself that you deserve the opportunity to be successful. And the second thing you got to understand that nobody does anything alone. You've got to find talented people that you can convince to go on that voyage with you or to share your vision. And you got to make sure they participate in your upside. You got to give them a stake in the game to make sure make them feel like you have their interests and the interests of their family uh, close at heart. And if you believe that and you work hard, they will work hard with you. And today, do you think for a young Bob Johnson who's starting out and wants to build a company, it's easier for an African-American to get capital or no easier, honestly, than it was 25 it's years ago? easier in the sense that there's a belief that there should be more diversity of opportunity whether it's diversity of opportunity is sponsored by the government or diversity of opportunity in the form of ESG that corporations, some of them give lip service to. So the theory is if you go and ask someone to be your partner who 
they're more inclined to give you a hearing. But the ability to get the right person and the right amount of capital is still very hard. My relationship with John Malone, and we still have it today, was extremely unique. I, I, I can't imagine that one out of a thousand black entrepreneurs' kids today could find them a John Malone. You've been involved advising presidential candidates, I presume presidents as well. Um, you ever have any interest in serving in a senior position in the federal government or running for office? Absolutely, unequivocally, no. The aggravation factor isn't worth it? It's the aggravation factor, but it's more importantly is I don't believe there's any integrity in it. So you do give money to politicians, though, because that's the system, but you... It's part of the game. I, I, I think, to be honest, I'm, I think there's a need for a multi-party system in the U.S. To give more people a choice about where they can throw their voter support and their political support, but also to cause the country to sort of come together by having everybody have a role in deciding what is in the long-term best interest of the country. I, I've often believed that black Americans, as a people and as a voting bloc, should adopt the same position that the original founders of the Congressional Black Caucus had in 19, early 1970. Their philosophy was enunciated like this. Black Americans should have no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, just permanent interests. And if we voted like that, we would be able to leverage that block, because it's a consistent block, in our long-term best interest, rather than being addicted to one party and ignored by the other party. Do you have government officials, members of Congress, or people in the White House ever asking you for advice these days? Well, I don't think they ask so much as I try to go to them to suggest to them what they should consider, particularly as it relates to what I call, uh, I have a formula, a belief, what I call their business solutions to social problems. I'm not a big proponent of government handouts. I've never been in favor of government subsidies. Uh, I, I like the idea of government providing a pathway through regulatory uh, freedom and, and balance to allow companies to create it. But they gotta be some focus on economic benefits to, in my opinion, to the black community. And for example, real quickly, I, I've got members of the Congressional Black Caucus to support something I call the Boost Act. The Boost Act, very simple, was this. It would give investors in black businesses a tax preference if they would invest in these businesses. I called in legislation, I was introduced by Congressman Mpume from Baltimore, would put 30 billion of treasury money aside for preferences for myself or you who would go to a company and say, I'm gonna invest in your business, X number of dollars. When you exit that business or do a, a, a sale of that business, I will get a preference on my capital gains. And the whole idea, it was not a mandate, didn't require it. It was only voluntarily. To me, that's better than all of these pledges that are going around that are not being fact, uh, implemented. And, and that's the kind of way I go. The same way I did that with the auto portability. So you're one of the best known black entrepreneurs and business leaders in the United States and one of the wealthiest. Do you face discrimination today in your daily lives or in your, um, your business career? Do you still think you're being discriminated against? Or do you think you're 
not in that situation. Others are, but you're so well known, you don't face that discrimination. Uh, no, uh, you face discrimination in terms of what I call uh, bias discrimination, where they, people just don't, they recognize you as black first, Bob Johnson second, and wealthy Bob Johnson third. So when you get in that situation, you'll find cases like this, a clear example. Uh, I, could be go, I could go to a restaurant, and if I'm standing outside waiting to, to go in after I'm giving my car to be parked, someone will come up to me and ask me to get their car. What do you say when that happens? <laughs> I say, can I take it and keep it? But no, I mean, the thing is, they, they see a black man standing by a parking, valet parking. Their intellectual bias assumes one, you can't afford to be at that restaurant. Two, you're standing next to valet parking. You must be a parking lot attendant. So today, um, as you look at uh, the United States economy, are you worried that we're heading into a recession of some type and it will hurt not only black businesses, but all businesses? I think the economy has to have a, a recession in front of it uh, until we stop the huge amount of fiscal spending that comes out of the government. And I see nothing in the government that will change that trajectory on spending. Uh, and, and that's the part where I think we've got to face a recession because as you keep dumping money and chasing fewer goods, it's probably the textbook description of you're headed towards a recession and, or worse than that, you're headed to something called, a variation of that called stagflation where you got, you got, spending going up and you got productivity going down uh, because it, it puts you in a problem. So yeah, I, I think so. until something changes on that equation, yeah. Did your parents live to see your success as a business leader? They did on, in terms of BET. They, they didn't, I still owned it, I hadn't sold it and hadn't done all the other things. That, that, did they tell the you, you're terrific, we knew you were gonna be successful or they said, uh, you know, you're just the same as our other nine children. That one. My mother always used to say, uh, somebody would say, oh, aren't you proud of your son, Bob? She'd say, I love all my children. That was her thing. Thanks for listening. To hear more of my interviews, you can subscribe and download my podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.